ways already Always Already podcast. I'm Emily. I'm John. And this is V. And today we're trying our hand at something a little bit different. Uh, discussion not of, of texts in the traditional sense, but of texts in the multimedia format. Oh. <laughs> yeah. uh, what are we calling this? The pop culture segment? I don't know how pop <laughs> I know these two things are. That is questionable. Uh, nor how culture the three true. of us are. We'll find out. So, the things and cartoons. Yeah. We're mashing up together two different listener requests. Uh, so, it's kind of going to be an episode in, in more than the usual number of parts. Uh, so, we had two listener requests that we're talking about. The first um, is from Brett Remkes. Hi, Brett. Uh, he suggested we watch the Pakistani cartoon Burka Avenger. So we watched the first season trailer and then the first episode of it. We're going to talk about that. And then after that, we're going to talk about uh, Carter from Halifax's request that we watch and talk about the film Upstream Color, directed by Shane Carruth. Um, so we'll do that. But I don't know. What, in general, before we get going, are you... The, what's the relationship between, like, the two of you and analyzing visual texts? Uh, I have no formal training in it, uh, but I certainly enjoy... So I said relationship. Right? Doesn't relationship have to be... I enjoy thinking through, you know, the visual. I enjoy thinking through movies and, you know, and relating them to a certain kind of my own philosophy. I loved it. You know, I love doing that with, like, The Matrix, for example. Sure. Which is an, an easy target. That's pretty low hanging fruit. You've never what? seen the Matrix. Interesting. At this stage, I feel like I love that reaction so much huh. that I almost don't want I mean, to see it. There does have I to. Like, yeah. There's some it's sort an of immediate like, like what? Yeah. Uh-oh. And there's a, lots of like interesting judgments you can see people pass on you instantly when you're like, I've never seen the Matrix before. The face is just like it's all captured right in the face. Uh-huh. That's true. <laughs> It's a little shocking. I guess everyone, like, needs their film or films that they, like, haven't seen and then yeah. become, like, stridently, I haven't uh-huh. seen that. Yeah. I don't know what mine is, though, for that. Alien. Although I intend to watch <sighs> that with I've never seen Alien. Sometime. What? Matt tries Ugh. to get me to watch it all the time. Yeah. B tries to get me to watch it all the time. <laughs> yeah, such a good movie. Um, maybe we should do that for a future episode. That would episode. be an interesting That's true. <laughs> Emily, thoughts on, on you and, and film and TV and interpretation and analysis, whatever you want to call it. I don't know. I mean, I think film and TV are kind of interesting uh, texts, right, for interpretation, given that there's kind of like two worlds they sit in, right? There's the world that's like the film world, right? The creators, the um, people who have like trained in all the techniques and there's like that kind of audience, but also film and TV differently from something like philosophy, right, are also created for mass consumption or consumption by people who aren't trained in the art of creating, right? So there's a kind of two-layer part to figuring out, like, what it's all about, Mm -hmm. which, um, you know, I don't think we're wholly unqualified (laughs) to engage in. I'm mostly unqualified. (laughs) I think by virtue of the fact that we consume visual media, we sort of, we have a, 
um, you know, a context or a wheelhouse of sort of um, reference, you know, references to make about or to apply to this kind of analysis. And being I don't know, I'm nervous though. Me too. <laughs> being critical thinkers, you know, we have a repertoire. So you could be watching a show that's not these and not be able to shut off the critical, you know, I that, do that shut critical off, like ther thermometer that's in your head. And I have a difficulty shutting it off sometimes and I just have to go, no, just let it go, stop, don't analyze it. But then movies like the one that we were about, you know, the one that we watched, it's one of those things where it's like, where does the criticism enter? What am I criticizing? You know, those sorts of things. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I am nervous too. All right. So now we've established that we're all nervous. <laughs> uh, we're unqualified to varying extents. Um, we're, I think, first going to talk about Burka Avenger. And then after that, there'll probably be a musical interlude. And then we'll talk about Upstream Color. Perfect. Yay. Okay, so the first thing we're going to talk about is Burka Avenger, which again, we watched the trailer for season one and the first episode. Uh, and again, to do a very quick, attempt a very quick summary, uh, it opens with uh, Gia, who is becomes the Burka Avenger superhero, getting her training from this kind of old sage figure. She's an um, orphan. She's an orphan. Yeah, she teaches at a girls' school set in Pakistan, mm -hmm. right? Um and there are a couple different scenes that there are children uh, that are very excited about school. There's to be a rock concert at the school their day, but first they're hanging out with their adorable pet goat, uh, Golu. Um, so these cute. two bad guys come and steal the goat. The kids follow. Uh, there's some hilarity ensues. Ultimately, Burka, Avenger, Gia, again, in disguise. In the full Burka. Yeah, yes. in the full Burka. Um, saves the kids, the goat, uh, takes down the bad guys. Her weapons are books and pens. Mm -hmm. She knows the secret art that's, uh, ancient art that's being taught to her. Um, and then there's this, you know, outsized caricatured um, set of villains, most majorly Baba Baduk, um, who is part of some scheme to shut down the girls of uh, the girls' school uh, in the town. And it's, it's a sort of political um, yes. corruption right. there, right? Like, right. they want to shut down the girls' school because all these charities are donating money to fund the, the girls' school, but why do girls need an education? Yeah, right. So shut down the school, put the money take, in the pocket. Yeah, take their money. Yeah. Um, and so ultimately leads to major confrontation at the end between... Um, the, between Burka Avenger slash Gia and Baba Baduk and, and his henchmen. Um, she wins, triumphs, saves the day, the school reopens, uh, they have their rock concert um, by uh, Harun, who is the, in the real world, real world, um, is the Pakistani artist slash musician slash activist who created this. Oh, yes. Does that work? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we had... This sent in by my friend Brett Remkis, um, and he asked us to think about some of these uh, things. There's been a lot of stuff written about how this gets at some of the very complicated factors regarding the sacred and mask slash covering in Islam, especially in the aftermath of Charlie Hebdo, it's interesting to see other kinds of quote-unquote Muslim cartoons. The issue I kind of have is that I want to maybe start problematizing this, but then I wonder if that's wise, given the tremendous impact 
that the show is having. So, I mean, any thoughts on kind of starting with those issues, then we can get into some of the other stuff about the show, um, particularly, you know, the function of the burqa slash veiling or the way it plays with the sacred and potential Orientalisms at play. Yeah, I mean, I think two of the kind of obvious themes that are here are is the traditional versus the modern, and then the, like, what do we do with rights discourse? So yeah. The kind of two things that were immediately obvious. I think there's some other stuff probably happening too. I want to watch more episodes at some point, but, um, you know, there's the, 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 an extent to which, um, those who are in an advocate for education as a basic right seem to ascribe to a kind of more modern, um, well, actually the charge of modernity is leveled at these people by, the villain, right? Yes. So he's like, they want to be modern, right? This is like, yeah. what? why do we need to give girls education? There's this whole diatribe about how they're just going to end up baking, you know, bread anyway. Why do they need an education to right. do that? Um, and then, so the, the villain kind of sets up the, this, this, um, you know, competition, the struggle between the modern and the traditional. Mm. Um, a very like caricatured yeah. <clears throat> version of. Right. So I guess the then the question is, it, if we want to problematize this, like, does the show reproduce this yeah. dichotomy or is it playing with it, right? Is it, mm -hmm. so I, but I don't really know, I don't know where I would land on that. I think that's an okay question to ask of it though, yeah, right? Like to totally. what extent, to what extent do, does, um, in identifying that, uh, you know, this is a, a, at least a sort of, um, caricature of mm -hmm. a kind of problem with Islam, right? Big scare quotes there. Yeah. Um, is that like, it doesn't, there's this like traditional aspect of it that doesn't embrace the sort of rights, modern rights discourse. Then like, does this show recreate that? Mm -hmm. Well, and then pair that with the following question of, is it, so is it reproductive of those particular issues? If a you know, a Pakistani author is engaging in that kind of discourse or is engaging in that kind of caricaturizing um, mm -hmm. of the villains that he or she, the author, the, the actual creator is a he. Yes. Um, that he uh, envisions as, as the villain mm -hmm. and thus um, creates a caricature of it. Um, you know, to what extent is then, no, I'm just, I'm bringing this up, just to what extent are we sort of, you know, innervating the agency of this person to say, this is how he perceives the villain. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, like, I think it's an excellent question to say, well, if your perceptions of the villain are to caricaturize him as some kind of, like, Orientalist trope, mm -hmm. um, you know, this floating... He was floating. Right. <laughs> um, you know, evil doer. Well, I thought there was um, two things happening in terms of how, like, what's happening with the traditional modern dichotomy, and I think just based on this first episode that that there's actually um, a making, a, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Problematizing yeah. of that dichotomy, right? Because there's two different traditional tropes, right? One is the bad guy, right? The guy who calls, um, who, who is, um, uh, really dismissive of girls' rights to education, right? for the fact that it is too modern. Mm -hmm. And so that's one sort of traditional figure that represents like traditionalism. But then there's the, her adoptive father, right? Burka Avenger's adoptive mm -hmm. father, who is teaching her this traditional art of, um, 
like it's like mind body balance right like what's the thing he says that the training is not about the strength of the weapon but about complete command over mind and body is what he's telling her at the beginning when he they're training Uh, right so there's i think that there's a kind of other discourse about tradition here which is that it's not in direct conflict with modernity or with rights discourse or with access to education But but in fact that there is something like sacred and traditional and that's valuable and complimentary to right. ed- like pro- uh, prospects for education and rights claims to education. Or through this alternate tradition, this alternate past uh, that one can get access to education, right? Mm-hmm. To women's rights, to women's education and so on. Mm-hmm. Right. So the tradition isn't automatically cast in the role of villain. Yes. Yeah. There are, it's multiple competing traditions. Yes. Right, which is a lot of, you know, what's like Islamic feminist scholarship talks about. Yeah. Um, so that's really interesting. Yeah, I wanted to say that in the you know, especially speaking of problematizing like the liberal rights discourse on like education being a right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that education in, you know, Muslim communities and in Islam in general is something that is, you know, deeply, you know, it's, it's a deeply rooted commitment um, and that it's shared in, in that universal sense um, and that, you know, I would be wary on some level of um, wanting to, you know, and I'm not saying that any of us doing it here, of lumping what's happening in the show automatically with a kind of westernized notion of the liberal right as universal right, right? right? because it seems to me that you know, what is happening in the show is a commitment to, you know, Islam as an ideal, Islam as a, you know, as a spiritual identity and, mm-hmm. um, and you know, as, as something that is and should be embraced. But it's a, it's a, you know, it's an Islam that is put, you know, in juxtaposition to uh, the villains, you know, Islam beliefs, um, et cetera. So there are multiple Islam. Right. There's multiple Islams as much as there are multiple traditions right, that exactly. can be used to different kinds of ends. And I mean, that, so that, you know, the question that we talked about right when we finished watching this is, you know, what kind of right is the right to education that comes up at least twice, maybe three times right. um, throughout that, for that first episode. So, I mean, another thing that I think is interesting to talk through with this episode is the fact that you know, that the weaponization of books and pens, mm-hmm. unless, you know, the weaponization of education is a weapon that has effects on others mm-hmm. to get something. Um, and B, I know you wanted to kind of push that into the register of nonviolence. Right. How? Well, I wanted to say that, um, so obviously, like, there's the clear metaphor of books and pens, knowledge, education as being the central goal, and thus to weaponize them is to say the more you know, like, the, the you know, that whole knowledge is power thing (laughs) the nbc star flying Mm -hmm. um but like my knowledge is power was Foucault. no 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 no. Uh, i was just thinking the more you know um so anyway just like but knowledge is power but also that books and pens right establish a metaphor of also nonviolent retaliation against those that would otherwise use Mm -hmm. force and violence so and it's interesting the way that, that it manifests is like through violent, I mean, she through throws traditional books, cartoon violence. Like throws books, and the books hit and cause pain, actual physical pain. Except, right? the, yeah. The, it, but the interesting thing is that in many instances, the books or the pens would poof into smoke, and then in many in the in the most I think uh, the most active scenes, 
she would actually use the strength of the bullies, the, the antagonists, against themselves. Yeah, right. And so would avoid having to use those violent implements. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that there are, obviously, like the weaponizing of books and pens, etc., is an actualization of what you know of using weapons of, of engaging in constructive violence but i think there's also the deeper metaphor of the way in which you know education and communicative agency um itself is a form of non-violent activity mm-hmm. um and i think that's an that's a, a form an embrace of that um yeah and that's what so i wanted to say that in one sense um that that metaphor plays out is that nonviolence can be embraced as a means of of changing you know cultural attitudes about these sorts of things in, was, in, inwardly, I suppose, yeah. What was the deal with uh, the politician pointing out how smelly the bad guy is? Do you guys remember this scene? Yeah, I do. What was that all about? I mean, that I read it's just kind of like further exaggerating or maybe playing with like the tropes of, or the, the orientalist tropes oh, about yeah, like uh-huh. backwards mm-hmm. Muslim men. Also mm-hmm. note that the male anchor and the news um, pod, podcast, <laughs> the, the news we're cast, doing a podcast. I know, we're doing a podcast, was completely bland, completely uninterested, um, and the female anchor was passionate, forthright, and, you know, and, and saying, look at what's happening, yeah. you know, in this province, etc. The male et anchor actually reminded me of Perd Hapley. It's just like, yeah, breaking it was Perd without the malapropisms. Oh, of course, it, but, you know, it's that one of, it was one of those moments where most of the men and most mm-hmm. of the men in the show represented a force that was trying to prevent you know, the education of these women. And mm-hmm. so it was a, you know, the episode seemed to be about, you know, an, an you know, an internalized, um, you know, agency and internalized, what's the word I'm looking for? Not just agency, but empowerment. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think what happens with the kids is interesting too, because yeah. there's like the one boy who really all he cares about is just the concert, right? There's, um, then, you know, the girl's like the smart one who's, sort of like the voice of reason, right? That she's like, oh, well, that's not a ghost. Oh, you yeah. Know? Like, yeah. ghosts aren't real. That's yeah. a that's a, a hero. That's a, mm-hmm. you know, super, you know, force to be reckoned with. And then, you know, the one when the school gets closed, the one kid's like, oh, we don't have the concert. But the other kid sort of has this, you know, insight that, like, the girl's school is closing and all you can think about is the concert, concert. you know? <laughs> but the girl kid is the one who... Really, I mean, she's the one who says something, yeah. right? When the the bad guy closes the gates, he's like, what about our right? She is like, what about our right to education? Mm-hmm. This is, you know, we're humans. We have access to this. We'll like, become illiterate. We'll, yeah. You know, this yeah. is our fate. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, that's right. Um, well, there was something else that you, when you were mentioning that, that I wanted to say, and now it's like slipping my mind. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, you know, so there's just lots of like interesting use of language here, right? And the, you know, illiteracy is darkness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the best defense against adversity, that's a quote, is yeah. education. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, books and pens are, you know, are like ways to resist adversity. Education is a right. There's this whole thing about inner peace. There's something about like the interplay. This is in the song that the rock concert oh, yeah. that actually ends up happening about determination and faith, yeah. the relationship between determination and faith, um, which also comes up earlier um, in in more in snippets, at least one other time um, mm-hmm. in the episode. What do you think it's significant that when Burka Avenger sort of defeats the bad guys, kind of cronies, that he poofs, Poops like, in. disappears. Like, is that supposed to be indicative of, like, uh, a, an idea that this kind of 
backward, uh, you know, religion is too mystical or, or is it just like for a comedic cartoonish effect? I, I think it's, you know, cartoonish effect, but also, you know, maybe it's suggesting that like these supposedly strong forces working against, you know, women's education or girls' education or something are like, ease, are very vulnerable or like easily punctured and yeah. poofed. Uh-huh. Or something like that. Well, I mean, he floats the entire time. He's an evil sorcerer. Yeah. That's what I took him to be. Like, he, he was characterized as a... But he doesn't have magical powers. He doesn't powers, seem to have right? magical powers, but it's strange to see this person wearing he's a robe levitating, levitating right? And was then he also, levitating? I thought I don't, he's I levitating. thought his, like, clo- robes were just, like, blowing. I see, it wasn't just billowing. It's, it, it looked as though he was actually moving up and down, not just sort of his... At least that's what, you know, mm-hmm. that was what I, I thought I... What I thought I saw. Mm-hmm. Um, here's what I wanted to say, too, is, like... So the boy who was only interested in, like, the fact that he wouldn't be able to see his, you know, the male rock star is, like, was interested in the material consequences of what happens when a girl's school closes down, which speaks to the sad realities that, um, but in some ways, a strange kind of, you know, realization that the boy had to go through, whereas the girl represents, you know, this school shutting down, our material futures are going to be ruined. You're only interested in seeing the, you know, your male rock superstar or whatever where the boy has to finally make the connection. It's like the girl's school closing down shuts down like a huge, a myriad of, you know, material benefits that you would otherwise be, you know, that you would otherwise have access to, including the fact of, you know, your favorite music, right? That it has, you know, outgoing, ongoing cultural effects more so than just within, you know, for female lives with women's lives, Mm -hmm. it has effects cross-gender and Mm cross-culture, right, and cross-communities and various communities within uh, Pakistan. But, you know, I thought, like, if we're going to do, like, a positive spin, which is a very, very positive read of that particular, like, kid's reaction, it's like, guess what? Like, close down the school, you lose out on all of these other things that you think don't stem from having this, you know, program available to women. Mm -hmm. But they are, Mm -hmm. right? So... I think that maybe the one other thing we should talk about, again, spurred by uh, Brett's questions, um, is... The fact that she wears a burqa. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. And that, like, the multiplicity of what the burqa does, right, mm-hmm. it's uh, disguised, and it's something that she kind of can move back and forth into and out of. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's an empowering age, right? It's what, it's what actually, you know, instrumentally allows her to fight the bad guys, right. Um, it also explicitly breaks down the traditional modern exactly. dichotomy, given that she, the Viverka Avenger, the woman, is the advocate for education, right? Rights to education. Sure. And, mm-hmm. and her, her mode of securing that right is the burqa. Can I, so and there's a question of the desacralization of the burqa, mm-hmm. too, right? It's not, it doesn't have an, at least an explicit, well, I mean, because of its existence, right, it, it's a religious or sacred object, right? But in, there's no explicit talking about it or articulation of it in the, in the show, episode yeah. as religious object. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think that, so as a sign of femininity too, right, so as a, um, as a symbol of being feminine, I thought it was interesting that, you know, the villains in the show, and I don't know if it was a mistranslation of the original or do, but... Um, they referred to the Burka Avenger in the gender they. they. Yeah. Um, and so I wondered the extent to which um, even the, Bur- the Burka Avenger was being denied a feminine agency by even being referred to in this sort of 
neutral way. I don't mm-hmm. think so because Or was it a mistranslation? No, I think it's neither. I think it's important to note that it's only the bad guys who refer to her as they. Okay. I don't think the kids use they. No. Do they? No, well, no that's the, so that's what I'm saying. Okay. It's like not throughout the show, yeah. but the fact that the villains are denying the possibility, the possibility that a woman is actually Maybe. engaging in these heroic acts. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and that that she is in, indeed an agent of her own future. Yeah. I mean, maybe the only last thing to say for me is that, like, the the style of the animation I thought was great. And, like, visually, it was, it was a, like, a really, really aesthetically, you know, pleasurable experience. Uh, yeah. I thought the soundtrack was good throughout, yeah. right? And, you know, it's a musician that does it, so that would make sense. And but, it's in um, video game format. Yeah, apparently there's a mobile game. Yeah. So there's a goat. There is an adorable there's a little goat. goat. Um, all right, so let's maybe take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about something totally different, the film Upstream Color. Okay, so for Upstream Color, we thought what we would do is, like, we're going to hold ourselves like a six-sentence synopsis in a film that where the plot's not centric. We can all agree on that? Yes. Okay, so six sentences from the three of us. Okay, so <laughs> I'll go first. We may, I think we nose goes and Emily had to go first. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man, I was hoping you might feel guilty about that uh, once we were finally on air. <laughs> no. No, okay, fine. no shame. Fine, fine. Um, so in this film, a, a woman gets infected with some kind of parasite and sort of um, manipulated with, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sound? Um, no. no. When when you like in carnivals when they bring people on stage, oh hypnotized. Oh yes. yes. Uh, hypnotized by a man who then forces her to sort of like empty her bank accounts and he steals from her. And after this man is is done with her and the stealing and everything, um, she slash the parasite gets spliced with uh, with an adult pig um, by this person who's listed in the credits as the sampler, and he does some sort of surgery where the parasite is connects the pig and uh, Chris, K-R-I-S, uh, the character. Right. And the, you know, some portion of the remainder of the movie is about the connectivity between the lives of the pigs on the one hand and the discontinuity in the lives of the humans Chris and what later becomes uh, her husband Jeff, and the connection between Jeff and Chris in the film seems to they meet. I think what's supposed to be much later, um, and they're sort of connected in some way. It's unclear to the audience, but it is clear that he has probably also been um, subject to this parasite. And one of the registers in which these connections occur is uh, is through sound. And sound in water, and sound in water, and something like we might call nature, and sound in water and nature, and uh, and Walden by Thoreau. And in many ways, it's about um, unraveling the mystery of what exactly happened to them, because they realized something indeed did happen. They couldn't figure it out, and so you're living in their own confusion. 
I think we need the one more sentence of how it ends, though. Do you want to give that away? Spoiler alert? Um, I don't no. know. No. I mean, even though it's not plot-centric, like, we'll leave it for the listeners. Right. Yeah. And yeah. that would violate my the self-imposed rule of six sentences. That's true, yeah. yeah. Let's okay. leave it at that. I think that was... Yeah. That was good. I, I think when we were forced to speak in that sentence, it kind of makes us choose our words a little yeah, more carefully. Totally, <laughs> and probably talk more slowly than we usually do on the show, right? right. Yeah, um, more deliberately. <laughs> I mean, who wants to start with something? I, I mean, I think for me, okay, so one of the things that I think is particularly interesting to think about with this film is the way it plays with and maybe reifies or reproduces, I'm not sure, um, binaries or potential binaries between human and nature, mm-hmm. uh, human and animal, and nature and culture, mm-hmm. um, and particularly the role that the parasite plays in the film of linking all of those things together. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I one could read that in the film as is saying is you know pointing to like there's something like parasitic relations in all of us that relate all of these things together but i actually don't that's the easiest reading one can make that but i don't actually think that's what the film's doing with these categories vis-a-vis the parasite mm-hmm. um but like, i mean the, the but it's these connections that i'm that i think are some of the more interesting ones um going on you had a whole host of things. Yeah. I did. I, I was just jotting random things down. Um, but I'm not sure if they're like overarching themes because, I mean, obviously... Well, what is an it's overarching not, theme? Well, you know, I, I always like to think that there's some kind of plot-driven thing within a movie, which I know in film there tends there are plenty of instances where there's not. But there are moments in the movie where, you know, you think to yourself, why Walden? So you think, yeah. you know, isolation. Um and what ultimately happens with that isolation as it's playing out with the individuals who can't remember mm-hmm. their their abduction. Why um, Walden? You know, it, it's about, you know, Thoreau's, to, to me it spoke as, you know, Thoreau's self-imposed isolation from civilization mm-hmm. and his dealing with, like, transcending the societal moment. Right, but so what's the, I mean, what's the commentary there? Is the commentary that, you know, like, Walden sort of acts as the vehicle for hypnosis because of its transcendent elements? Or is it like a... I mean, could you read, like, a critique of Thoreau in in that? Like... You know, here's the thing is that I don't, like... I know I'm always, like, I'm, like, kind of the neg head, but I felt like it was a kind of a trite use of, like, what Uh it means to be isolated, Uh you know? Um, And so I think it was just kind of... It wasn't just thrown in there, but it was an easy way of saying, here's a piece of literature that discusses isolation, but, like, communing with nature. So it goes back to right. nature, So right? here's... But that's why I don't read it as isolation. Well, I mean, it depends how we're... De- it depends how we're refining, defining relationships or something, right? Because, yes, Thoreau is isolated from so-called civilization, or he's isolated uh-huh. from other humans, right? But he's right, in but a he's deep connection with from... nature, right? He's in a mm-hmm. connection with... Uh, transcendence or like nature as a vehicle for transcendence or something maybe so like given the fact that in the film while Thoreau plays actually both of these roles right he's the vehicle for hypnosis in the earlier part of the film but then at the very end of the film Thoreau becomes a vehicle to connect people with one another and connect people with these pigs that they're related to so it's not just isolation that is mm-hmm. at work. I, mm-hmm. I know. I, 
like to me it just feels that's why I said it was a trite use of, of Thoreau because it's just something that you can use as saying you know when you read Walden it's about his you know his self-imposed you know disconnect right that strictly speaking is saying society is out here I'm communing with something that is non-societal so that I can come to terms with a certain degree of myself or who discover who I am mm-hmm. um, and I I think that in that sense like I don't even think the director is going in that route. Of well, using that's why Thoreau. I was saying that it might be like a critique of Thoreau, right? If we think of, if we think of, um, you know, the potential that what's at stake here is problematizing the nature culture binary, yeah. then it's like Thoreau in creating a separation of himself from culture, like communing with nature, also sets up a false kind of binary, right? And in communing with nature, we see that we're also then connecting with society, right? That those two things are sort of coextensive. You can't, mm-hmm. you can't set, lift one out of the other. And I was, uh, well, going on this theme, but the reason why, I, so I write isolation, but, um, right. So what happens following the fact that, you know, Chris is abducted, she's brutalized and, and, you know, and what I wrote down is raped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that she loses her job. She's unable to make up the lost time. She's lost all memory and contact with any kind of sense of what happened. Um, you know, and in that sense, you know, right, violated by a guy who like, you know, interestingly enough in the film says that my, my face is made up of the same substance as the sun. So you Mm -hmm. can't see me. So in the film, so for the listeners in the film, the uh, abductor, uh, or I think his name is the thief in like IMDb or whatever is narrating what she has to do. And she performs all of those tasks. And then shortly thereafter, you know, after the, um, the abduction's complete and the parasites run its course or whatever, you know, things that pop, pop up for me is like, she goes to the doctor, right. Or she, she's, she loses her job, right. She, you know, she has to take these pills. Things that come up is like, is she taking pills for depression, issues of mental health, HIV, right. She tells, she tells Jeff at one point that she was diagnosed, diagnosed, the Jeff himself, I know we're jumping, but because yeah, it's just discontinuous. The movie's right? jumping, yeah. right? It's, there's no like linear progression in the film. There are moments in the film where Jeff is obsessively taking out colors of pieces of candy, placing them on a on a napkin, and then eating them. That's suggestive of a kind of obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and even Chris is diving in continuously into a pool of water, taking out stones, placing them on the side, which suggests a kind of repetitious symmetry. Mm-hmm. And so I think that in that theme of isolation, it's like exploring how these individuals are dealing with a trauma that they can't explain. Mm -hmm. Um, and they can't explain because they can't remember the source of the trauma. Right. That's, that's the way it was sort of like speaking to me. And, uh, and so it's like, how, how is that playing out? It's not only the physical health, but like also the mental health of each of these individuals, not suggesting that there's some kind of deep separation between the two. Um, but how are they, you know, relating to that trauma right um i mean in that i mean the bringing up of like the trauma and some like originary trauma that they don't none of them quite remember at least not until near the end they start to make this connection between thoreau and water and what happened to them and they you know we won't spoil the end but that opens up a number of possibilities for them um 
I don't know. I mean, that, that makes me want to, like, move it to a more psychoanalytic register. Right, right. I mean, that's um, talking in terms of, like, originary trauma that's unrecoverable mm-hmm. or just forms of trauma that are unrecoverable or, you know, the category of the wound in someone like Freud or the category of the wound in Deleuze, even in the late Deleuze, um, as well. There's certainly the lack, you know, that that's built in because each of them are trying to fill in the, the absence that exists. Mm-hmm. And so... If we're thinking about subjectivity, their their own subjectivities are defined by this lack or the the absence of an understanding of a thing that is causing them deep melancholia. Um, you know, even if we can we can go that psychoanalytic route. I want to bracket the following statement off a little bit: is that where the fuck is Chris's agency in any of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to say what if we could talk about Jeff. Yeah, yes, please let's explore that. That's because uh, Jeff has agency. Jeff has his. Yeah, has his job. Right. Chris does not have anything. Like, I mean, I don't want to go to that extraordinary, that extreme route, but like, it, it seems as though Chris is cast in the light of the of the pure victim. Yeah, and, absolutely. I was thinking that too. That he, that there's, you know, I guess part part of that is a function of the fact that we only see we follow the traumatic. Um, in, in you know the experience of being infected with the parasite through her perspective, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't see what Jeff underwent when he was presumably right. afflicted with it. We only see what Chris went through. But she, um, you know, he still, even though he says some things that don't quite make sense, right? She says more things that don't make sense, right. and he sort of falls into this role of like taking care of her, right? And then there's the thing with like her womb, and then yeah. the pigs. You know, there's like this that that something is being lost here and it's something that's <coughs> not human it's specifically feminine right it's like yeah. she's lost the ability to ha- give birth right she can't um you know she can't procreate and that this like makes the trauma her trauma somehow um like amplified in comparison to what he's lost and so note that know. the final image of the film and this is not a spoiler right the final image of the film is her like cuddling a baby pig, pig. right yeah right like and you know so that kind of fits in but i mean yeah. like the, the the gender tropes that it draws on even if it's telling us a story that may or may not be patriarchal or may or may not be feminist um the way that it gets us into the movie by focusing all the trauma and, you know, I wrote down that, like, this is, you know, al- this is not even allegorizing. It's like a, it's a form of rape or date rape mm-hmm. um, that goes on in the film, right? It's through this kind of traditional gendered narrative of the, the, the feminine woman victim, mm-hmm. right? That we get into these bigger questions that the film is presumably interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of Emily's friends commented when uh, he heard that we were uh watching this movie and talking about it he said it's the most pretentious thing he's ever seen or something like that which, I mean, like um, an exercise of pretension yes yeah which it does feel like that i mean can we talk about that one scene that had a different husband and a different wife yeah. repeating yes. the same thing in the same clothes but she had different hair every time what was the function of that i didn't know so this this is where interestingly enough i wrote down that there was a Cartesian element that I, I probably the director did not was not exploring. But like but, you know, we're saturated okay, in Cartesian, right? So uh, I'm of fine course. So like so right? in every moment, right? So all of a sudden, what was his name according to IMDb? Uh, the, Jill and Ben were the other couple. So Jill and Ben. Oh, he's just listed in the credits as husband, though. Okay, but she who's, calls the him sampler. Ben. 
the yeah, sample okay, cat. So, oh, the sample the, cat. The, the guy who's raising all the pigs or whatever. I'm the real asshole, I suppose. But um, the villain. He. It's it's as though he represents a kind of because throughout some parts of the film, I wondered whether he was imagining the lives of these human beings and entering into their lives at various stages. Mm-hmm. And I wondered at which point, like what points um, were imaginary, what points were quote real. Yeah. And so, you know, as he's entering into, is he making up the lives of each of these characters out of these various pigs that are being raised and the extent to which we can like rely on previous kind of like, you know, uh, images in the film mm-hmm. where there's this transference mm-hmm. of the parasite between the human and, yeah. the, and the pig is that all of a sudden he's entering into these lives and peering into them. Um, and so it made me wonder about the way in which, you know, or the extent to which the life that is lived is somehow illusory or has no, if the life that is lived is, is non-sensuous and, um, or if it's non-sensuous, is it real? Um, and the extent to which there is a the proof of its being real, like how do we know we exist, or and and to an extent like going back, it's like how do we know the trauma that we experience but cannot remember? Mm-hmm. How do we know that trauma exists? Um, and so that are scene... you saying that the humans in this film aren't real? That they're playing play acting the lives of the parasite and how it affects the pigs? Yeah. That's exactly what I'm I mean, saying. I, I, I mean, I did write down, like, at one point, Isn't that you fucking know, pretentious? Well, <laughs> I wrote down, is he real? I wrote, yeah. I wrote down, you know, what is, like, ontologically primary right. in the film. It is absolutely true. That's, I mean, that was one of my big questions, especially when we got to that scene and there was this constant, but that's also the constant repetition of, like, the, the obsessive-compulsive element of... Things are going to get better. I'm sorry I said this. Things are going to get better. Mm-hmm. And then the husband's always saying, I hope saying, it's better this I hope time. It's better this time. The husband's saying, it's meaningless. You're, you know, what you're saying is meaningless. And so this this exchange was just telling me, you know, who is the infected? Was she the infected then? Or are they we both? don't know if they're. We, right. Or they might no, both not be. She's like infected. dead, right? That's well, what she, spawns the, the flashback to their re, oh, right? Or, yeah. she, or she gets cut off. Gets, on an, on ambulance. an ambulance, right? So we don't know if she's dead. But yeah. in the ambulance, there's her husband Ben and, sampler, and the right? sampler. Yeah. So like the sampler plays this weird liminal figure of like the one that is able to stitch together or move through space, time, time, sound, like all these different worlds that may or may not be or that are connected in some way that we can't know. Is the evil demon? Um. Descartes' evil he demon. Descartes' evil oh demon. Oh my gosh, we're really bad. I, I Wait, went to that. I have to tell I mean, you, that's... when you said evil demon, I was not thinking Descartes. I was thinking Buffy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if only. Can we do an episode about Buffy? Oh, yes, yeah, please. I would love that. Um, if you have favorite episodes, listeners, that you want us to talk about, send them in. We'll talk about Buffy. Some Buffy episodes on the yeah. show, or Buffy in general. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that's a good question, B. Although it's interesting to note that, like, the one figure that is stitching together these various realms is the middle-aged, presumed, like, seemingly well-to-do white, white cis man. man yeah. Right? He also doesn't speak, which is interesting, right. because he's sort of like, I thought he kind of, to me, in some ways represents, like, is he that real? who bears witness. That's, that's uh, the he I was talking about right. when I said, um, is he real? Is he real? But he's, I don't know. But I don't really know, like, what function that plays in the film. Like, does it matter? Yeah, like, maybe it's something about, like, 
um, you know, if, if part of what this film is about is about relationships and, like, the trials of being intimate with someone, then, like, maybe... I don't think it, it's about that. I don't, I don't think, think it's, either. A, I don't but think it's about that. I read movie. a lot of stuff that said that's what it was about, but I was just like, I don't know. Well, clearly, they're not thinking about Haraway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cyborgs. Yeah. Cyborgs. Yeah. I... Um, but I thought there was something kind of interesting about the fact that he is watching and he yeah. moves, right? Like you said, between sort of time, space, sound. Yeah. But he never speaks, right? He doesn't yeah. have any any lines at all. And his engagement with sound, like, messes with what we think of sound mm-hmm. as the kind of, like, something you hear is a direct reflection of the thing that it is, right? And he's, like, collecting sounds and he plays them and he creates these tapes and they're... Um, you know, they have some sort of relationship to not what the sound actually represents, right? So mm-hmm. he's collecting a sound. It's like the wind rustling the leaves. But when the person who's, ex- uh, you know, had been infected by the parasite is listening to the sound of the leaves rustling, it doesn't represent leaves rustling in the wind. It represents some kind of, like, embodied right. traumatic experience. So I feel like, I don't know. So and the other thing was, like, okay, so for instance, like, the, the dichotomy between being and appearance... I felt like what he represented was that phallic because I don't. There's a pivotal moment in the movie that I can't speak of. Mm. Um, where he just mouthed and yeah, pantomimed it to right? us. So on the one hand, I feel as though here's where I might go back and say there's no Cartesian. Maybe it's like the death of Cartesianism. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but on the one hand, you so have, he's mind or he's body. He's I, mind. I think that he's representing. I think that he is a, the meta representation of the two world fallacy of okay. like Descartes Got metaphysics. It. And oh. so, so what you have here is like on the one hand, the pigs representing sort of, um, appearance, mm-hmm. right. And then the humans representing being and ultimately what's happening throughout the film are the, these two moments trying as hard as possible to come together. But there's that one pivotal moment when finally the that metaphysic- wall between them exactly breaks breaks but is break, broken forcefully yeah. by the very person who or by one of the people who was denied agency right mm-hmm. oh the mode in which she exerts that agency is also interesting yeah in terms of its gender politics. very very although i mean but this raises okay so there's there's two questions one that I need to think about how to ask so it doesn't spoil the end I know, of the movie it's because I want to. I think we're not doing question. this right. I think when you like talk about films, it's okay to spoil, right? That you want to just say, be, it? like, spoiler. All right, yes. spoiler, yes. Alert. spoiler alert. So when, in the end, Chris shoots the sampler, what slash who is she killing? killing? Yeah, that's what that's I wrote. That's a question that I wrote at the end. What is she killing? And I wrote the exact same yeah. question. I think she. I mean, because like she's killing, and and in the act of in that act of killing, right, the worlds are more Collapse. accessible yeah. mm-hmm. to crossing, right? If we say they're different worlds in the first place, but it's it's more easy to travel amongst these various related relational worlds, or these relational ontologies, or these relational like levels of being or becoming, or something mm-hmm. like that. But the other thing I was going to say, be in response to what you were saying, is that. Like, the way you frame that also raises the question of, well, why do we necessarily assume that the humans are primary and that the world of the pigs is secondary? Yeah. No, that's the thing, is that I think the world of the pigs are equally, uh, okay. are, are equally I'm just saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. equals, right? Yeah, well, because, I mean, and I, this, I don't think this was what you were doing, but I think you said this is what the film does, uh, is, yeah, is yeah. ascribe 
the pigs to the world of like materiality mm-hmm. or bearing and the, and the humans to the world of appearance. Mm-hmm. Other way. He said that. No, it's the other way. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, whatever. But like, I, I, but I, I think that it's too easy to say that, all right, One so the humans are the, the humans other. are the mind and the pigs are the material world, mm-hmm. right? Like, I don't think that's necessarily so easy to do with this film. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, and I think that, that like, well, what I, what is envisioning was the slow collapse of, of something that is nothing more than a false dichotomy. And that ultimately what was gained more than just sort of some like metaphysical collapse was, um, you know, and I, the gender politics behind it is Chris noticing that scene where she sees the sampler. The sampler is shocked by the fact, if you see his, like his face is shocked by the fact that that Chris now sees him gets up and moves away, but then Chris is now in the world of appearance shooting him. She but shoots in, him in both worlds. In both worlds. Right. And then as soon as that happens, there is they that fold back immediate, in like, yeah, the immediate thing in which appearance and being, that Nietzschean sense, sure. are one and the same thing. Um, or in a pro- like constant that. process of becoming and being, right? So I think we done good. No, I have a couple more things. Yeah. Uh, that that last mode makes me think of, like, Deleuze and Becoming Animal. Yeah, I wrote, um, yeah, that's right. And, the, and, like, in the way that those worlds collapse, right, I think that that's one of the things that, like, that's one way to, you know, visually and orally, a, you are, uh, like, uh, produce or express uh, Becoming Animal, mm-hmm. right? This is the one when those two worlds collapse. But I think we should say something about the way the film plays with time, space, sound, um, and then perhaps, like, the way, maybe not so much the way it's shot, but the way it's edited. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way and the way that the sound and the editing and the sound and the image don't always coincide perfectly. Right. Um, especially when Chris and Jeff are talking to one another. Yeah. Um... I mean, I don't quite know what to say about it, other than, like, I wish that I, like, had read Deleuze's books on cinema, because the way that he talks about time in cinema, I don't know enough about to, like, tell mm-hmm. you why, but I think there's a lot of really interesting things, like, Deleuzean time things to do with this film. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, like, the, 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 in it being something that you experience in an embodied way, like, with your senses and the yeah. way the senses work together... The, I mean, the sound, especially the sound editing combo, and then the way that gets played with time and space, like, that is the thing that was most striking to me, like, yeah. striking in an embodied sense. It's interesting because there's there's a discontinuity in sight because time is, is broken up, and it's, it's obviously, it's discontinuous. Sound, at least in terms of what we hear from the, linguistically, is broken. What do you mean that it's discontinuous? You mean that it's not... It's not chronologically ordered. Not you know, synchronous. Not synchronous, yeah. Right, right. But I do think it is ordered chronologically. I mean, like, the thing that the things that happen in the beginning come prior are prior to the things that happen at the end in terms of time. Yeah, right? I know. Yeah, I agree. I, maybe I just, true. like, I, miss, I, I misspoke. So it's like the things that are occurring are not in such a way, are clipped and edited in such a way that it's not easy to just simply assume or it's not obvious Mm -hmm. that this happened at this moment in time where it's like, were Chris and Jeff married here or now all of a sudden they're talking about marriage. Could they have been married at that point? And then, you know, it could have been switched around. It's not Mm -hmm. entirely obvious, but it is going through 
you know, a chronological, but not maybe a chrononormative, I don't know, um, mm-hmm. way of, of a, a, explaining the story. But when they're speaking, the sound is discontinuous because sometimes their speech patterns, the way that they're talking, don't make they It just doesn't make sense. There's, they're referring to things that, you know, don't have an immediate referent. They, you know, it, so that's broken up, but there's, a, there's obviously uh, an emphasis on like tactile senses too. Mm-hmm. Um, hands. Hands, lots of hands and like, and. But the and hands aren't touching anything. They're like it, feeling vibration, feeling sound, sounds, air, right? or something like that. And so, and so yeah. And, um, wait, what was the, oh, so, so that all creates a kind of discontinuity, discontinuity in cognition. Right. And the way that we are and the way that our perceptions are operating within the film or like how it's impacting us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, don't know if that's... I thought the hand was really interesting, recurring sort of element, but I didn't I wasn't sure whether it was this is the first hand, I think, as far as I recall, that you really notice kind of doing this engage in this kind of like feeling, sensing thing is, um, I think Chris's yep. hand when she's like infected with the parasite yes. and you see the You're parasite right. moving yeah. in her body and then you see her hand mimicking the waves of the parasite, right? It's like yeah. a worm thing and she's making these like wormy motions with her hands. Yeah. And then later you see the sampler sort of like, moving through all of the worlds mm-hmm. and the shot is like his hand is in the foreground of the shot and then the the world in which he's walking is is the background right yes. but it's like the hand leads the camera right the mm-hmm. hand leads the perspective it's not his it's not the rest of his body it's his hand right. specifically um so in some in some cases he almost seems to be like directing the, mm, the sound yeah. or directing the action or directing the, uh, even the soundtrack, right? That there's kind of like the, the wind, the leaves rustling in the wind kind of moved in accordance with the movement of his hand. You know, there's like, he's, he's kind of, I don't know. He's such an interesting yeah. there's, figure. The way that you mentioned that, Emily, like it makes me want to flip the way that I was describing is that if the sampler is moving in and out of worlds, then humans would then be, appearances sets of appearances and the pigs would represent the truth of being Mm -hmm. because the pigs are always in one central place but the humans are always in this discontinuous way and they have to get to the truer world of the pig pig. Uh and so that would so the, the the reverse would be true so yeah that's right like the sampler weaving in between these worlds that he seemingly created is he god i don't he is a white dude i know i think that he's the evil demon (laughs) <laughs> what's the difference uh, what's the difference sorry that's probably that's a terrible thing to say <laughs> should we erase that okay no uh, <laughs> is he god I don't know I just th- I just thought it was like the meta representation of Descartes metaphysical fallacy of the two I'm worlds. sure that's what the director had in mind <laughs> of course yeah naturally <laughs> is he uh, Plato or Plato's Socrates? <gasps> oh. Maybe more so than the evil demon of Descartes? Maybe, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. That's, that's the most pretentious thing <laughs> of this episode. Yeah. I think I, I mean, ended there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to be back with the dream where we can talk about being an appearance some more. And then uh, we have at least one advice question. Great. Dream of the stars that
So we're back. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed our discussion of visual texts. Um, you know, if you'd like more, suggest things specifically you'd like us to talk about, I guess. If you would not like us to ever do this again, I guess, let us know. <laughs> let us know. I'm not going to feel too bad. There's I'm probably also an hour later. Also other ways we could go about it. I mean, we right. could talk about if, if you thought... Maybe that uh, some film or episode of something speaks to a particular thinker. Ooh. That might be a more pointed way for us to kind of get into. Sure. Like or you the can meshing just, of text. Yeah, you mean you don't want to just us to like <laughs> ramble on and having no idea what we're talking about? How kind to the listener you are, anyway. <laughs> Um, all right, so I am a woman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gender! Uh, it's time for our. Uh, segment called One or Several Wolves because no one else has said they like or dislike that name or sent in um, alternatives. It's too so late. It's, it's two episodes it now. now. Yeah. All right, one or Several Wolves. So here's our dream to talk about. Again, all of these are forever going to be anonymous. Send in your dreams. Always already podcast at gmail.com. I'm on a plane with the rest of my family, although we're all sitting in different parts of the plane. This plane runs entirely on autopilot, so there are no human pilots. At some point, near the end of the flight, I get up from my seat, walk into the flight deck, override the autopilot, and put the plane in a sharp dive as if I was going to crash for about 30 seconds. Then I set it back on autopilot and go back to my seat. When we land, a couple people have minor injuries, and I'm paranoid that I'm going to get caught. I'm not worried specifically... Uh, about feeling bad about what I did, but feeling bad and worried specifically about getting caught. My mother is slightly injured, so and we end up at an old, rundown hospital, almost like an institution. My mom is doing fine. I'm still very worried about getting caught, so I try to go find somewhere to be alone. The bathroom for visitors is more like a locker room or a grotto. It's very dark. All stone. There's nowhere to be alone. Then I wake up. Whoa, that is interesting. <laughs> Hold on. Excuse me. I'm taking notes. No, very, very therapist of real, you, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> so maybe okay. Analyzer does. Do you want to jump? You want to jump in first? Well, I think there's the literal Go interpretation, for it. You which said is that wanted to be your role, right? Um, several okay, roles. so here's what I think. I think the literal interpretation is just like anxiety about moving through life on autopilot and then distrust of oneself when you take it over, you know, there's like the literal kind of, that's what in that moment where you're like, you know, where the dreamer is like, um, let's take this off autopilot and control it. And then that moment of control sort of like there's a a distrust of, of the self or, or a worry about getting, doing some, both doing something wrong and then getting caught. Right. Uh, doing something wrong, but not necessarily a moral sort of um, hmm. anxiety about like if that if that is the correct you know the most right thing Got to it. do. Okay. Yeah, I think that I would agree that the literal interpretation is um, would be most interesting is that living in autopilot creates and you know creates a sensation of you know the degree to which you can you know, question one's own responsibility to one's actions. Like, what responsibility do do you have when you're doing something that is routine? But what I find most interesting within this dream is that the dreamer, um, you know, sets himself up or herself up for destruction. 
And so how, for however long um, they decide to do this nosedive, they're doing a kind of Freudian death imaginary where, you know, they're inviting, right? that they're inviting themselves they're inviting themselves for a kind of destructive moment, mm-hmm. but it's not in the sense that they want to see themselves destroyed. It's in the sense that they want to, you know, disrupt and maybe see a new cre- out of that, you know, because the death imaginary isn't necessarily one that, that seeks out death, but rather seeks the creation and recreation of something new. And mm-hmm. so, well, I think that the fact that the what 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 the worry is afterwards is about getting caught is more about power. That's a no, su- it's like like Althusser, like interpolation, right? That huh. like autopilot is the is the like we've been sort of disciplined as subjects to accept autopilot as the appropriate mode of like being Mm. on a plane in the world. Mm -hmm. Right. And then when you take a moment, take a chance to sort of, um, fracture that way of being and try, you know, like don't accept the rules of autopilot, then the anxiety that's produced out of that is an anxiety about breaking the rules about like being an undisciplined subject and what what then you what kind of punishments then you open yourself up to when yeah. you get caught oh, I like no that. longer acting as a disciplined body that's good because then like because well, you know that puts like all the libidinal energy in the dream mm-hmm. is the taking off of autopilot putting into a nosedive right so there's the twinning of the libidinal and the you know the the Nato's drive mm-hmm. um, going on in there too, right? And then it's the worry of like, oh no, society slash authority slash superego slash whatever is the one that's super worried about that. Now this is all good what we've done, but there's also this whole family aspect and yeah. then this hospital yeah, slash yeah. locker room thing yeah. that's going on in the dream too. I think that the, what's being portrayed here is that, the, okay, so if we're talking Freudian or psychoanalytic Go parlance, right? The super, the, you know, the ego ideal is at play where, you know, your you know your fear of you know being caught in the sense that you're responsible for the fate not only of yourself the dreamer but the destruction right the dreamer of um of this you know this universal you is being brought down but so also, we're universalizing the you let's universalize the you that you are being brought down by um you know by but not only by your own um, kind of libidinal drive, but you're also bringing down others around you who have invested themselves in you, who are scattered throughout this plane. No, they haven't invested or in the dreamer, though. Maybe, they've invested in the autopilot. Right, maybe the dreamer is worried that in in the moments where they cast off their disciplinary subjecthood, that they're um, one of the things they're risking is the the um, sort of disapproval of the family who subscribes to autopilot as the appropriate well, like mode the, of being in the world right I so the family the is disciplined and the the dreamer is like questioning that that discipline and questioning that huh. mode of being and, is, and so the worry about getting caught is partially a worry about what it would mean for the family who believes in it who believes in autopilot to to see you, so the family to is, see the dreamer subject to the. So the, the family is like normativity, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I don't believe that the family is aware of the autopilot situation. I believe the dreamer is the only person who's aware of the autopilot situation, and that mm-hmm. the autopilot being disrupted and the the kind of the feeling of not remorse but necessarily the 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 worry of the responsibility of that responsibility of being found out is that those around the dreamer, the family, would now be made aware that they were indeed on autopilot, that you have been, you know, this person who has taken down um, the plane and, you know, has, you know, as the dreamer, 
um, created the conditions for the possibility of injury, which takes us to the dreamer. But the dreamer's not worried about injury. The yeah. dreamer's well, no, worried no, about pre- getting no. caught. But that's the thing is that it's the no- I'm just thinking of the dream outside the dreamer's like control as yeah. for the creation of the conditions. I wanted, yeah, I wanted to like I throw wanted, some agency into right, the dream as well. So and so, going. like, and so the question of that agency of, of taking of taking control, I think, speaks to the inability of the dreamer to see him or herself as being. Um, an agent of, you know, his or her own, you know, ability to either, you know, create or destroy or to, to do a thing, to be a doer. Mm-hmm. And so what ends up happening is that the dreamer finds himself in a ramshackle hospital, right? That the dreamer's mother is, you know, who, whatever that may represent in the Freudian sense, right, <laughs> is injured, but that in order to find the isolation that one indeed needs to find and, and, you know, that apparently this dreamer is an introvert, that this, that this dreamer needs a space in which to find, you know, him or herself, finds a, um, you know, a room that is not really a bathroom, but rather uh, a room, a space in which multiple people ends up, could ultimately find themselves. Right. Not a private bathroom, but a locker room. Slash a rundown grotto. grotto whatever that might mean. So it's, so it seems to me that this agent, um, continuously finds, um, although this, this ego ideal is all, is pushing the agent towards finding, you know, the equilibrium of, of agency never truly finds the, the conditions for that agency always finds defeat. Okay. Always finds defeat. Any other thoughts, Emily? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure it's always finding defeat. Yeah, I'm not either. I think that defeat is, you know, in this sense, is not necessarily one in which it, it should be seen as negative. I think that defeat, well, defeat is one... defeat and the, like, re-entry into normalization, discipline, yeah, superego, interpolation, all of that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, that we're, that we're constantly seeing ourselves, ourselves as entering into those conditions that we have been attempting to escape. Which is the whole sure. point of putting the plane on, you know... In, in essence, not just... Taking it down on auto destruct, right? Not auto destruct. Well, when you think That's about the, the only when you think about it, right? The destruction. Well, when you think about it, but you're it's an not autopilot, even destruction. Like it's like just tempting. Jolting. It is in that sense auto destruction because it's the dreamer who possesses the ability to destroy the plane entirely, but and auto destruct, and thus decides to abort the auto destruct. Oh, you mean because, so by because the dreamer... By auto-destruct, yeah. I mean, in that sense, destroying whatever it is that plane okay. is ultimately representing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right? So the dreamer d- aborts the auto-destruct. Is the dreamer a phallic thing? Or is the, is the dreamer a phallic thing? What? I know. Oh, uh, definitely um, the airplane's phallic I was going to say, is the airplane a phallic yes. thing? Oh, so the airplane is patriarchy. Maybe. <gasps> and uh, where it's it's it moves on autopilot, and the dreamer is thinking about what it would mean to disrupt the autopilot of the, of the patriarchy. Ooh, okay. On sure. Wednesdays, we destroy the patriarchy. <laughs> On Wednesdays, we crash play. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think that was a good one. Wow. Like yeah. uh, dream analysis by Boys like Already Podcast. Psychoanalytic classes? You're fucking amazing at this. No, I just read a lot. <laughs> <laughs> No, I just read a lot. No, I just read a lot. All right. We have one advice question. It's time for my Tumblr friend from Canada. Uh, This is from BL in London. That's all we got. Not as much of an advice question, although if you can give me advice based on this, by all means, do it. 
what Star Wars character is oh. closest to each of you? I would like one of I would like other people to define for each of them. Oh. So I think that means that like Emily and I choose one for B and B and Emily choose one for me and so on. This okay. is the greatest question of okay. all fucking time. He's Princess Leia. Oh <laughs> no, see I disagree. I have I am up two I'm up two minds for B. I just wanted to call him a princess. <laughs> I think B And I love you all the more for it. B is an assemblage of on the one hand Han Solo because you are uh, witty and like acerbic um, and dashingly good looking. Oh. Um, and then the other uh, part of the assemblage is <laughs> Admiral Ackbar. Oh, it's oh, a trap! My god. Oh my god. <laughs> so that's 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 who I think B is in yeah. Star Wars. I want to know Han why Solo's my Admiral <laughs> Admirable. I always say that by he the way. He's admirable. Uh, they Admiral, are admirable. Yeah, they are admirable. Why Admiral Ackbar? Because I think it'd be hilarious. <laughs> Oh my god. But I think he is like, one of my favorite characters. But I, I think admit. that like Admiral Akbar, like I could see B in the Star Wars universe in like a position of control among those who are resisting the Empire. Mm-hmm. And like Admiral Akbar is at the same time like both totally in control, but they totally freak out too. Okay. And I I associate that with B. Okay. Totally in control, but also on the edge of freaking out if shit goes bad. Oh yeah. It's a trap. Okay, so now we need characters for Emily or I. Wait, I thought Emily gets to say what I would be. I mean, we, you know. Huh. Okay, uh, I think that... Do I get to respond? Sure. Um, I think that you would be a combination, too. I, I can't imagine you just being like... I think that you would be a combination of um, C-3PO. I was going to say C-3PO. Right? Oh, um, R2-D2 I could see for B also. But, beep boop, beep boop. Yeah. Um, because no one, no one understands vocally. me except, like, a few people me. in the world. Basically in the Yeah. Um, um, well, wouldn't that make you, um, oh my god. Chewbacca? Yes. So, you would be, you would be Han Solo. Yeah, and, and you're Chewbacca. Chewbacca. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what the fuck did you just say? Oh, let me translate. I'll tell you. Um, so I think that you'd be a combination between C-3PO and, um, the Emperor. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have like some feelings about the podcast and okay, so, authority that we need to talk about? That's actually just getting you back for Admiral Akbar. <laughs> but I do think C3PO, because I was thinking about C3PO as kind of struggling with the identity of a cyborg, you know, like the in, in moments where it's like there, there's, like, a, a struggle to define, like, or, or expand the definition of, like, what counts as a feeling sort of thinking entity, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that those are, like, you know, not that you are a cyborg, but I think those are questions that really, like, you know, occupy your sort of, like, a lot of your intellectual space. See, okay. the reason why I would, I, this duality between the two is that, on the one hand, <laughs> I, you know, C, C-3PO, oftentimes I think that's true is working to the service of others, oftentimes at the expense of himself. And he doesn't recognize Mm -hmm, that. mm -hmm. Um, And I think that when I say the emperor, I say that you take absolute control over in in those instances where you do recognize, right? The inability of people to um, recognize your service. It's not that you're ruthless, but you take on the full capacity of agent to say, we're going to do this. This is how we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And you have full detailed plans that always seem to work out very well. Interesting. Okay. I don't know how to feel about that. I, I wish to think that you about could shoot more. force lightning out of your fingertips. But <laughs> don't we all? Yeah. 
Emily. I don't know about the like forcefulness though. I feel like you're more of a behind the scenes like you. That's you what create the, the plan is. and you manipulate it though. But or not manipulate it in yeah. like a bad way. No, but, I know like, what you mean. Sort of, sort of like you See, send the vibes that, out and like things. Things like unfold. I send the out. Yeah. Yeah. You send out Darth Vader. He's always behind the scenes. You only see the Emperor through like you know holographic imagery, and then all of a sudden you see the Emperor. And like when you know when I reveal he's myself, about to like, the and he's like, I've been behind it the whole time. All right, uh, we need to give Emily her uh, due <laughs> and her who she is. Um, I'm getting a little bit of a Yoda vibe in the oh my sense God, I was of about like to say that. in the sense of like I think Emily's like wisdom and power is oftentimes a, like, quiet yet very powerful, mm-hmm. powerful power, uh, powerful wisdom. Um, so, like, like, that's where I get the Yoda vibe from. There's, like, another element that I haven't quite gotten to yet, and I'm not quite sure who it is. B, do you have thoughts? Um, so I see that as being a combination. It's weird because, on the one hand, it's, like, slash mentor and student simultaneously, but you're a combination of Yoda and Luke Skywalker. Interesting. Because mm-hmm. Luke represented like a kind of Luke represented the new hope, mm-hmm. right? So you're you're representing uh, you know, a kind of a branch of scholarship that's very much needed. You're representing a new way of uh, you know a new epistemology that's opening up new brand, like new ways of, of thinking. But and is so, Luke really like a new epistemologist? Isn't he kind of like yeah. It, there are many yeah. instances in which, like, Luke falls short, but what Luke represents is something that you represent. Wow. However, when you think about that in contra, you know, in, you know, conjunction with Yoda. See, I think Leia's more of a, by, by the end of the first slash last three, uh, that. I would never Leia's compare it to Leia because Leia's oftentimes, you know, sexualized, objectified. I know, but and, like, and that's Leia's the it. smartest and like has her shit together the most. So, but well, have you ever seen me in a gold bikini? That's one thing. <laughs> so maybe it's like Luke I'm and Leia joking. together with Yoda. I just had an image have, of you in a gold bikini. So I, I have. I go a mirror of John. Both. <laughs> yeah. Um, Next podcast, we're going to be recording all wearing Princess Always Leia already. bikinis, but you'll never see. <laughs> Thank God um, this is a radio show. <laughs> I, I get with Emily more of the Obi-Wan vibe than Luke. Obi-Wan? Yeah. B, I, just, B, I think B doesn't like Obi-Wan, so we'll, we won't yeah, go just, there. There's something about Obi-Wan that always, like, you know, it was, it, he's not active. You know, I feel that there's a there's a reservation with Emily, but there's also this instant reactivity that I appreciate is that she's willing to take the reins. Like you are willing to take the reins when it's necessary. Um, you've already thought through in many instances the course of action that is required, um, and that you yep. will take on those responsibilities. Whereas I think Obi Wan oftentimes, you know, sits back and sort of wants to ca- always calculate, always engage in a kind of like. Um, you know, a thoughtful struggle, mm-hmm. right? Whereas you do the thoughtful struggle, but you do it at, in a simultaneous way with action. Mm-hmm. Thinking and action are simultaneous with you. Interesting. Interesting. All right. So how about everyone, no explanation, but just someone that you self-identify with that maybe we didn't identify you. Uh, I identify as Ewok. More, uh, I, I'm more uh, Ewok uh-huh. identified than 3PO or the Emperor, yeah. but I'll take it. Darth Vader. Okay. Darth Vader. Um, I don't know. Chewbacca. Okay. Great. <laughs> I wish I could do that. I wish. I do too. I'm yeah. a loyal friend. 
Yeah. Um, that's so true. You are. But you will kill somebody if they cross your path, that's right? That's true. Or if they cheat you at whatever I chess have. game they were playing. Oh, shit. Do you think anyone's still listening? <laughs> 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 Don't arrest me. Um, okay. All right. I'm a Star Wars note. That was a very deep place that we took that question. We did. Probably, maybe we should do advice before one or several wolves. Oh. So that we only yeah, like, so we're like, like, already like, in the like psychoanalytic yeah, headspace to then point. go answer the advice questions. That's a good point. Although yeah. are we always already in the in the psychoanalytic headspace? Yeah, I think it's that part. That's the question, team. Ponder that question, listeners. And in the meantime, send us texts and you'd like us to discuss advice questions to answer and dreams, dreams to, analyze. to analyze. To always already podcast at gmail.com. A programming note, as they say. Um the we're gonna be like time shifting all of our episodes throughout the whole summer because uh, Emily is amazing and going to an NEH workshop seminar, amazing thing. Uh, B is going to go be a scholar in residence at University of Victoria uh, to do research at a trans archive. Rachel's going to be in India. Um, I'm doing nothing except sitting here dissertating because I'm the boring one as always. That's but not, that all of the episodes will be. Probably we're going to be recording maybe a bunch now, but releasing them slowly. So, like, when episodes come out is not necessarily going to have a relation to when they were recorded. So, temporality. Have an always already day. Bye. joining us on another Always Already podcast episode, which is a creation of John McMahon, Rachel Brown, Bea Altman, and Emily Crandall. Visit our website, alwaysreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Email us text you'd like us to discuss, advice questions to answer, and dreams to analyze at alwaysreadypodcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to our RSS feed, and leave us a comment on iTunes, please. Thanks to Rocco and Lizzie for Garment District, which you heard in between segments, and B for his cover of Landslide. Until next time, bye.